All right. Well, it's also Juneteenth, so happy Juneteenth, everybody. It's a federal holiday as well. Yeah. So it's a cool holiday. Uh, Juneteenth uh, is a holiday that celebrates June 19th, 1865. June 19th, 1865 was the day that a general and the U.S. Army, I believe it was, showed up in Galveston, Texas, which was, I think, kind of technically the, farther, the farthest west Confederate state with enslaved people in it, because actually Arizona was a Confederate state. Unfun fact as well. And so uh, uh, this general and this army shows up to Galveston, Texas, where there was still enslaved people two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation. And so that day is the day that legally um, all, the last of the enslaved people were, were freed. And it was on June 19th, 1865. And it's been a holiday amongst the black community for many years that they celebrate Juneteenth, they call it, for June 19th, celebrating when legal freedom was instilled to all people across the U.S. I think it's a great holiday to celebrate. I think it's a great thing to reflect on and remember because it, it's a day that a great evil in this country was legally uh, overturned. As we uh, plan the book of Colossians, we kind of take books of the Bible and we just kind of talk through as a lead team. So if you're not that familiar with redemption, there's 10 of us congregations. And on the lead team, which is all the different lead pastors and a few others, we kind of talk through how we want to preach through certain books or certain things. And then we just pick a book and then we just kind of plan out what we think is the best way to preach it. And so when it came to Colossians, we just picked Colossians and then one or two or three of them kind of picked out how to divvy that up throughout the weeks. And it just so happens that this passage about slaves and masters fell on Juneteenth. It wasn't planned. It wasn't manipulated. It wasn't like, it just so happened. And I've noticed being part of redemption over the last now almost 10 years, at least, uh, very often our preaching calendar, which just kind of gets not randomly planned, but just we look at the book and then plan it and then the dates kind of randomly happen. I, I've noticed very often that God seems to want to speak to us through even the dates that some of these passages fall on. And, and it's incredibly sovereign, I think, that God wanted this passage on this day to be preached. And the reason why I think it's sovereign is because this passage in Colossians is a passage that in American history was used to condone slavery. In American history, there's this thing called the Slave Bible, and it was a Bible they gave to the slaves saying, sure, you can be a Christian, sure, you can be part of our religion, but we're going to take out anything in there that would lead you to believe that you are a full human like white people are fully human. And one of the passages they kept in there was this passage in Colossians. And so today on this Juneteenth, I really kind of hope that we could have a redemption of sorts with this passage I hope that we can redeem and correct uh, a passage that has been misused and abused and used for uh, oppression. I hope that we, I, today, I hope I can give better and clearer, clearer teaching for a passage that's been used, honestly, for evil, this passage has been used. And so, uh, so that's, what I, that's what I hope today um, to do, because I think a lot of times this passage is either misunderstood or abused or ignored. And so here's what we're going to do today as we go through what's a tough passage probably for all of us as we were like, is this really the scripture reading? <laughs> like kind of a moment. Um, we're going to read that passage again together. 
And then uh, there's three things that we're going to do today. The first thing is we're going to talk about the background of slavery in the Greco-Roman world. Because to understand what Paul is speaking or saying in this passage, we have to understand that background, okay? So we'll talk about slavery in the Greco-Roman world, which is that first century, the century in which Paul was writing, um, and really the centuries around it as well. Um, And then the second thing that we're going to do is we're going to figure out what does the Bible actually say about slavery? What does Paul actually think about slavery? Can we figure that out? Can we know? Does the Bible uh, condone slavery? Does it condemn slavery? So that will be kind of the second part of the sermon. What does the Bible actually say about slavery? And then the third thing that we'll do is we're actually going to draw three things from this passage. We're going to three things that I think God is teaching us today through this passage, okay? Three things that God's teaching us today through this passage. So those are the three things we're going to do. I'm going to take a drink, and then we'll hop into to the passage. All right, Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 4-1. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Colossians is a letter that Paul and Timothy, who were church leaders, wrote to this new church, this new group of people who found faith in Jesus in Colossae, which was a, a Roman city. All right, so verse 22 says this, slaves... Obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Okay, so a tough passage. In fact, I bet it's tough enough that for some of you, I think that's maybe the first time you've even heard this passage because of um, how we read our Bibles a lot of times. For others, I bet you when you have read that passage, you kind of just go, oh man, that's uh, weird, and kind of just forget about it and move on. And so all the time I'm saying that I think this book is God's word. So what do we do with a passage like that? With something that we just in our bones know slavery is wrong. Like there's just something in us, in our bones we know slavery is wrong. So what do we do with a passage like that? And so I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to talk about what sort of slavery that Paul is speaking to here and the slavery and and look at what what slavery was like in the Greco-Roman world, okay? And I think that will help us partially in in understanding this passage. And so... uh, So, in the Greco-Roman world, uh, slavery was a bit different than American chattel slavery. The slavery that we are very familiar with because of uh, our history and our country's history and other uh, countries' history as well uh, surrounding us, or Western countries really, um, in particular. And so, uh, Greco-Roman slavery was uh, pretty different than American slavery, or American chattel slavery, as it's called at times. Um, In American slavery, we know people were kidnapped, and they were forced into slavery. And in American slavery, we know it was often race-based, kidnapped from uh, other countries, and forced into slavery. In the first century, uh, slavery was 
often voluntary. In fact, this Greek word for slave or slavery in there is doulos, and doulos could also be translated bondservant. And a bondservant in the Greco-Roman world was someone who could sell themselves into slavery, like is essentially saying, hey, I'm going to sell myself into slavery. I'm going to become an indentured servant to someone uh, so I could pay off a debt, a debt, for instance. And so someone maybe had some huge debt, and they said, well, I'm just going to go become a slave of this very rich man, and eventually after 10 years, I'll pay off that debt. And then that person, the bond servants, once they paid off their debt, they could become free. Or sometimes people would uh, even put themselves in slavery to escape poverty in a sense. They would say, well, hey, if I am a slave for the next 20 years, I can escape poverty. I could save up a certain amount of money um, in this way. And so uh, it's important to note that a slave is a good translation of that word, but so is bond servant. Both things are, 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 are really the same in the Greco-Roman world. And so it's good for us to know that, that that alone is pretty different than American chattel slavery in that aspect. Um, something else important to know, in the, in the Roman Empire, which is where Colossae was, uh, it's estimated by scholars that probably about 30%, 30% or so of the population were enslaved. So 30% of the population were slaves or bond servants, which again, same thing in that time. And so, uh, and then it's also important to note, note it wasn't race-based, okay? They weren't taking one particular race and saying, hey, you're going to be the slaves. It was everybody. Everybody could be a slave and you could find a slave of every ethnicity in that day, okay? And so, uh, so, in the Greco-Roman world, it's important for us to see that slavery or bond service, it was just a way of life. It was how things went. It was how the world worked. Um, look at what scholar Andrew T. Lincoln says about slavery in Paul's day. He says, no one in ancient times could conceive of an economic or labor structure without it. While there were brutal forms of slavery, the concept, indentured labor, in which the laborer was not free to market his skills to other employers, was considered a given. So, when we get to this passage, and the passage makes us uncomfortable, this is just something good for us to know, that the Bible is what we will say often is ruthlessly realistic. It's going to speak to a people in their day, in their language, in their culture, and if, it's almost if the Bible didn't speak to slaves in that day, it almost would be problematic because it'd be kind of going like, why aren't you speaking to this group that made up 30% of the population? And so, so that's some of the background to see how uh, bond service or Greco-Roman slavery was different. That being said, I, I think sometimes when we compare and contrast, we forget that there were still a lot of great evils of Roman slavery as well. There's plenty of evils of Roman slavery as well. I want to point out some of those evils that were in Roman slavery. One uh, being that people that were enslaved, bond servants, they were seen as less than in society. They were seen as the low, one of the lowest classes. I don't know if they were seen as the lowest class, but they were seen as one of the lowest classes. I don't know if they were seen as subhuman, as American uh, plantation owners saw their slaves, but uh, it's still, in the Greco-Roman world, they saw slaves as less than. Uh, not quite, I think, as subhuman, but maybe just as bad. I wasn't there. Um, 
They were too also uh, in, in the Greco-Roman world. They were treated as property. Uh, not quite the same as in uh, American slavery, but, uh, but there was many laws, many Roman laws to protect really the slave master uh, in this whatever you want to call it, in this sort of relationship with, uh, with the enslaved. And so uh, the one law, for instance, is if, if a slave ran away and uh, the master caught him again, the master legally could cut out the slave's tongue just for running away, even if that bond servant or slave was going to become free at some point. Um, so not great. That's not a good law. Um, if you need help understand that, I can tell you why later. Um, Another reason I think Greco-Roman slavery was evil in a lot of ways is the Roman Empire, as if you know anything about it, they were just expanding and taking over areas and just ruling the land, one of the biggest empires in all of history, right? And when they beat people in a battle, in a war, they weren't like, hey, you're just citizens now. They were like, hey, everybody that lost, you're slaves now, right? Like, and a lot of people that lost to Rome in wars, uh, they became slaves, which I think is just wrong for many reasons. And so uh, another reason I think that Roman, Greco-Roman slavery was evil was uh, because of gladiating and acting in theater. Uh, we all know in gladiating, we've all seen, how many of you guys seen gladiator, right? Like... This is not, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's far off from the truth, but, um, but this was true that, that people who were enslaved would be thrown into the gladiator's ring just for people's entertainment. And um, the movie was right that you died in the ring. Like it wasn't uh, pro wrestling. Like people were really being killed by each other. Uh, enslaved people were forced to kill each other. Animals were killing them. Um, and they were forced to do that because they were slaves. Um, uh, another thing a lot of people don't know is uh, with theater and acting and plays in that day, if there was a murder scene, how they did the murder scene very often was they would buy a slave and kill the slave on stage uh, for the murder scene. So, and actually in early Christianity, a lot of Christians were not, they, they abstained from acting completely because, because of this practice. And so anyways... Roman slavery, it was different. It's fair to say that it was very different than American chattel slavery, but it was still not good, right? Like, I think I've heard a lot of sermons that talk through this, and they're kind of like, see, it was, like, fine. And I'm like, it's not fine. Like, it was still a really bad and heinous uh, evil. And so, but I still think it's helpful to know the differences because a lot of times we equate uh, Greco-Roman slavery uh, to American chattel slavery, and it's not the same, uh, same at all. I think American chattel slavery is far more evil. I, I do think that. Um, but I'm not saying that Greco-Roman slavery isn't evil. I think it's also evil, um, just evil in a different way. So, um, so what do we do with that? It's like, okay, thanks for the history lesson, Anthony. Like, I, I'm still, now I feel worse about this passage. Um, so, what do we do all that? Well, moving kind of to the second part is what, what is, what does the Bible really say about slavery? Does the Bible condemn it? Does it condone it? What does Paul think about slavery? A lot of Westerners, we love to put Paul on blast and go, what does Paul really think about slavery? And so here's what I'm going to um, claim right now is I'm going to argue using scripture that God, the Bible, and Paul are all anti-slavery. Okay. I'm going to use Bible verses to do this, that they, that 
God, the Bible, and Paul, they're all anti-slavery. They all think slavery is not right, okay? And so here's why. I'll, I'll first pull a verse that I think is just the keynote verse in helping us see that God is not okay with slavery, and it's Exodus 21.16, which I forgot to put on the screen. But Exodus 21.16 says this. You'll have to listen since it's not on the screen. It says, whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death, whether he sells him or the person is found in his uh, possession. Okay, I'll read that again. Whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death, whether he sells him or the person is found in his possession. That's Exodus 21, 16. So when God frees the people of Israel from Egypt and he begins to give them laws to help them be a people, to be God's people governed by God, this is one of the laws he gives them. He says, essentially, if you participate in what is like, exactly like American chattel slavery, that person should be put to death. Like, this is how serious it was to God. It wasn't just a fine. It wasn't just, it said, this is worth the death penalty, even if that enslaved person is found and alive. Like, this is how evil it was to God to kidnap someone and to enslave them, okay? I think it's also important to note here that the book of Exodus itself, one of the central stories, if you were going to take five stories from the Bible and say, this is what the Bible's about or pointing towards Jesus in some way, you would take the Exodus story as one of those five stories. The central story in Exodus is God taking an enslaved people and freeing them, okay? And so uh, in that slave Bible I, I mentioned earlier, Exodus, the whole book of Exodus was taken out. It was just not in there. So uh, right there, Exodus right away, I think, condemns American chattel slavery as we know it. Um, now, what about Paul, though? Tricky old Paul um, that we have a hard time with a lot of times in the West. Um, what does Paul really think about slaves? He's got these two places. There's Colossians and there's Ephesians where he talks to slaves and masters, and it's kind of confusing. It makes us feel uneasy. So what did Paul really think about slavery? Um, I think the first and best place to go to to kind of uh, understand what Paul thinks is 1 Timothy 1.10. Again, not on this on the screen, but 1 Timothy 1.10, it's another one of these lists of Paul's where Paul lists a bunch of things he thinks are sinful, and one of the things in that list are enslavers, or in some translations, it will say slave traders, okay? And both are good translations of that word. Essentially, Paul lists this list of sins. He calls, it, uh, he calls everything in this list like ungodly, sinful, unrighteous, and then he lists all these things, and one of those things is enslavers, or slave traders. So very easily you could say, okay, Paul, he would have said that the American chattel slavery that we know is ungodly, sinful behavior, not for God's people, not just not for God's people. I think Paul would have said not for humanity. Um, and so, so that's what Paul thinks about enslavers. He has it in one of his many lists of sins. Uh, another thing that's interesting uh, is Paul talks to enslaved people in another place. It's in 1 Corinthians 7, 21. Again, I don't have it on the screen, but I'll, I'll read it right here for you. He's talking to enslaved people that became Christians, and here's what he says. Uh, were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But... If you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. Okay, I'm going to read it again since it's not on the screen. But were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. 
So in 1 Corinthians 7, 21, uh, Paul is dealing with this dynamic where enslaved people were becoming Christians. And because the good news of King Jesus' gospel, that King Jesus has come and liberated us all, he has essentially enacted the Exodus story for all of humanity now through his cross and resurrection, I think the Christians in Paul's day who were enslaved were going, well, can I even be a Christian then? Can I be a slave and a Christian? Is that even possible knowing King Jesus' good news? And Paul's answer is, is essentially like, listen, you can be a Christian and you can be a slave. But then Paul speaks to this dynamic. He goes, but if you can, get free. Like, if you can, get out of it. Get out of the bond service if you can. Almost as if Paul is saying, like, yeah, this is not ideal for the Christian. This is not ideal for anyone, really, I think Paul would also say. But he's saying this is not ideal for us. Under, the, under King Jesus' good news, this is not how we are supposed to live. But Paul, I think, is also speaking to this dynamic, understanding that the institution of slavery was not going to probably be overturned by them in Rome, which I know sounds crazy to us because we're a bunch of American revolutionaries, but I think he probably had a very pragmatic view of it. And also they, they were, you know, Caesar would kill people. <laughs> like it was, uh, and sometimes the certain teachings would even cause Christians to be more persecuted. But anyways, I think Paul is, is talking through this dynamic where, hey, this is an evil institution, and yes, you've become a Christian, and you're, you're under this evil institution in some sense, so get out of it if you can. So I, I, I think you can kind of start to see, okay, Paul, he does not condone slavery like we might think if we only read the Colossians passage. I think the last place to look at what Paul thinks about Slavery is in a book of the Bible called Philemon. The book of the Bible called Philemon. I encourage you to go home tonight, read it. It's a great Juneteenth reading, actually. Um, short book, just a chapter, I think. And so go home, read Philemon. Philemon was uh, a, a slave master. And Philemon was someone who had met Paul at some point, heard the gospel, began to believe in Jesus. And then Paul went somewhere else. As we know, Paul went all over the place sharing the gospel. And Paul is somewhere else. And all of a sudden, what happens over where Philemon lives, which was probably in Colossae, by the way, is he had a slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus, his slave, escapes Philemon, goes to wherever Paul is. Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus. Onesimus becomes a Christian. And so now, this letter of Philemon is kind of dealing with what I think Paul was probably trying to figure out with Onesimus. Onesimus was going like, hey, I actually was a slave at Philemon's place. And I think Philemon might even know you. And Philemon's a Christian. And, and especially in that day, if you had ran, ran away as a slave, it, it probably looked a lot like robbing someone. And so Paul and Onesimus are having this conversation. What do we do? How do we make this right between two brothers in Christ? And so Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter, the, the letter of Philemon. And it, you got to read the letter. It's really interesting. Paul kind of starts off talking to Philemon at one point in the letter, and he just says, hey, I could command you what God's law is and just get you to do the right thing that way, but I'd rather not. Like, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but this is how Paul, he's like, I'd rather appeal to your heart. I'd rather convince you of God's love so that you make the right decision with Onesimus without me just commanding it to you. With the, and Paul's kind of going, because I'm a leader in the church, I could command you to do this. He goes, but I'd rather appeal to your heart. And some of the other things he says to him is like, listen, Onesimus now is your brother. Onesimus is my son. 
Like he's family now. You have to deal with Onesimus as if he's a family member now. Paul is completely subverting the institution of slavery here, uh, talking to Philemon. I love there's this line, again, I'm paraphrasing, there's this line in Philemon where Paul says something, I think, to the degree of like, listen, Philemon, if Onesimus owes you anything, charge it to me. Which, by the way, you owe me your life because I led you to Christ. Like, I love that Paul sometimes is like, by the way, if you're going to say I owe you something, I don't. You know, like, he's like, but charge it to my account. If Onesimus owes you something, charge it to my account. And so Philemon is a a letter written by Paul to to a family in Colossae. And it really seems that Paul is subverting slavery. We have to remember, again, that the Bible is ruthlessly realistic. I said this earlier. It's written to a, in a real time, a real place, a real people, and a real culture that's all different than our time, place, people, and culture. And so I don't think that Paul affirms the institution of slavery. He doesn't kind of say the, the, the thing that would make us Westerners feel good in condemning it. But if you really looked at all that Paul said about slavery, even in his day, and if everybody listened to what he taught about slavery in his day, it would not, con- not necessarily take out the institution of slavery, but it would completely abolish the institution of slavery. If you began to listen to what Paul was saying about slavery and live that out, it would just completely abolish slavery. And I would actually say that people that have read the Bible well over the years and had read Paul's teachings on slavery well over the years, it indeed was part of what abolished slavery. When people read this, when Christians read these passages well and understood them rightly and did not abuse and oppress with these passages for their own gain, they were the ones that were often fighting for the freedom of the enslaved. If you look, look at the history, look at the biographies of uh, William Wilberforce, uh, Charles Finney, Harriet Beecher Stowe, or Harriet Tubman, all of these people were strong Christians. They found their identity in Christ first, and then they got to the Bible, and they, I think, by the power of the Spirit and by seeing what the Bible is actually saying, they landed on that no one should be enslaved. In fact, I need to fight for people's freedom. All of those people did, and those people helped lead, lead the way in freeing the enslaved. And so I, I hope that kind of helps us, kind of looking at the background and then looking at the totality of Paul's teaching on slavery. I, think, I, I hope that helps us. It's written to a real time and a real place, very different than ours, and it's very easy for us to kind of just go to this passage and be like, well, why didn't he just say this? And I, and I just have to say, I don't know. I don't know. It would make me even feel better. When I read these passages, I get an uneasy feeling. But the reality is, if Paul plopped into our church and looked at how we did things, I'm sure there's a ton of things that would make him feel really uneasy, and he would have good biblical reasons for that as well. And so we have to know that although we don't have that keynote verse, although I think we do in Exodus personally, that condemns slavery the way we want it to, uh, a lot, if we look at the teaching totally, if we look at it closely, we see that slavery is really being abolished through Christian teaching, through Paul's teachings in particular. So, so I hope that this Juneteenth, we kind of redeemed this a little bit, that, we, that this was a little bit of a redeeming moment, a little bit of a correcting moment that we could kind of go, okay, now I can go to that passage and maybe not feel as uneasy. 
But now I, I kind of want to end the sermon by looking at three things that I think this, this passage can teach us. I'm going to be one of those annoying preachers in your life. As long as you come to this church, I'm going to be an annoying preacher. And here's what I mean by an annoying preacher. It's much easier if I just ended the sermon right now, right? And just said, all right, cool. It was a great history lesson, <laughs> like, you know, type of a thing. And some good teaching from the Bible. But I'm one of these annoying preachers where I really think because of the historical uh, tradition of Christians taking this book, and they have all said, this is God's word. Somehow it's fully written by people and their personalities and their times and their places, but it's also somehow fully God's word. So I'm going to be one of those annoying Christians who kind of goes, annoying preachers who goes, I think even this passage can speak to us today. I think God could tell us some things today. It might not be quite uh, exactly enacted as it was in the Greco-Roman world, but I think uh, there's some things we can learn from this passage. So there's three things from this passage that I think God could speak to us, okay? So here's the first thing. The first thing that I think God would teach us using this passage in Colossians is this. It is easy, it's easy for any one of us to become a sinful, dehumanizing master. Come say that again. It is easy for any one of us to become a sinful, dehumanizing master. Many of us have power over people's lives. Whether you're an employer, or you're a manager, or you're a leader, or you're a mother, or you're a father, whatever you might be, many of us in some way has power over other people's lives because that's the way the world works. And I think when Paul is talking to masters here, and he's saying, masters, you need to remember to treat the, your slaves justly and fairly, I think our ears should pick up rather than ignore it. Because I think Paul's speaking to something in all human hearts that easily goes towards demonizing sinful master-like behavior when we feel like we are okay doing that because that's the way the world works. I think it is crazy how quickly a lot of us become entitled, unjust, dehumanizing masters simply because we have power over others or simply because we feel we're owed something. And I don't think it's just uh, the leaders in the room or the managers or the business owners in the room that do this. I think it's all of us, and I'm going to prove it to you using an example. And here's the example I want you to think through right now, is think of the last time you complained to a customer service of any sort. The last time you complained to any company about anything, I want you to think about it. Maybe you called Verizon's customer service. Maybe you talked to a manager. Maybe it was some poor cashier that you were railing on because your coupon was expired. Um, I want you to think through, how did you treat that person? The last time you complained to a business, how did you treat them when you talked to them? Did you see them as an equal? Oh, sure, Anthony, sure. Okay, would you like to be talked to like that? Okay, yeah, no, totally, like if I did that. Okay, let me ask you this. If you were married, let's say you were married, because I know not everybody's married. If you were married, would you want your spouse to talk to you that way? Would that feel dignifying and like treating you equally? Which, just an aside, a lot of the people we complain to, you guys know they don't have power to change anything, right? I don't, I don't know if you know that. Uh, like, 
Um, some of them, sure, I guess, <laughs> but uh, definitely not cashiers. And so, but this weird thing happens to us as Americans. The second we have the power of being a customer, we feel we have the right to use dehumanizing tones and language to get what we think we are owed. I can't tell you how many friend group situations where me and my friends are just having dinner and it just devolves into a conversation about this person did this to me at usually Home Depot and (laughs) I treated them like this and yeah, I got what I was owed. Now I get it. I feel the same way. I've done the same things at times, but I think that shows us very clearly it is easy for any one of us, even with just the power of being a customer, to become a dehumanizing, sinful master. Paul's warning to masters here should warn us as well. We should hear it. We should listen to it. I think we as Americans especially, we need to hear his warning a bit louder because I think the second we have power or feel entitled or feel owed, we become unjust, unfair, miniature pharaohs, miniature slave masters, miniature plantation owners, whatever you want to call it. And it's weird because we all kind of go like, yeah, that makes sense because that person at Home Depot did this. Some random Olympian just trying to make it, you know, whatever. Whatever. <laughs> They hire a lot of Olympians. Um, that was a really good joke. Uh, but church, let's not get pulled so easily into this way of life, this entitled way of life. Let's remember we have a good God who actually is our master and that we are, we're not owed anything. That every good thing we experience is a good gift that he just gives us freely out of his grace. Any good thing you experience is just because God is like, I'm a good God. Not because you deserve it or are owed it. And so examine your heart, heart, church. See if it quickly goes to dehumanizing sinful behavior the second you have some sort of power or entitled feeling. My favorite kind of people in the world, some of my favorite kind of people in the world, are those that treat uh, the service industry really gently and kindly. Those are my favorite kind of people. They remind me of Jesus. Um, Okay, the second thing, the second thing I think this text can teach us is this, is all work is good and all work serves and images God. All work is good and all work serves and images God. Uh, It's amazing to me, actually, that Paul talks to the slaves here at length like he does and really gets down into the nitty gritty of their work. Because in that day, their work was seen as the most tedious, the worst work. Like it was just the worst kind of work. It was work no one wanted to do. It was work you'd only have a slave do. Uh, it, it was the worst kind of work. And I love that Paul just spends this portion of Colossians uplifting their work and going, no, your work really matters. Your work's really beautiful. Your work pleases the Lord. Your work is as if you are working for the Lord directly. What we can pull from that is that all work serves God. All work images God. Not sinful work, obviously, All other work images God, serves God. God is pleased by our work. No matter how tedious your work feels, no no matter how frustrating your work feels, no no matter how, I know a lot of times we're kind of like, this doesn't help the world. This doesn't change the world at all. I think that God would say to you, I actually love your work. 
Your work pleases me. You can do it so, you can do it wholeheartedly because it's serving me. It's like I'm your boss. I'm so excited that you're doing this work. I think some of you guys need to hear that. I know a lot of moms in the room who are just tirelessly working. And even my wife kind of talks to me, just going, I feel like I'm not doing anything important. I just would say, look at this passage where the Lord says he's pleased with your work. Besides the fact that her work is not tedious and it's not low, it's doing some of the most important things, I think, in society, in raising kids and loving kids. Also, my wife works full time, so I don't, like, <laughs> so it's not even just that she's a stay-at-home, she just feel, I know that a lot of moms just feel that burden. The work that feels pointless to you brings God joy. It brings God joy. You are imaging God when you work. God is the divine worker that brought creation into being by his work. So as tedious as some work could feel or seem or that's not world-changing enough, I think God would say, man, I love the work you're doing. I'm thankful. And I think that when Jesus returns, I think he'll point out all the ways that it helped do exactly what God wanted in this world, bring more peace, shalom, love, wholeness. I think it's also good to know and look at what Paul said there along with this kind of work piece is that we have an inheritance coming. I've been one of those people that has felt stuck in a dead-end job, and it's not being a pastor, okay? Um, I felt that in a lot of other jobs that I've had. And I think that, that God would say to me, like, hey, I've got an inheritance coming for you, Anthony. I've got a payment coming for you. You can work wholeheartedly. Uh, Tim Keller, he talks about this illustration a lot that I really like. He talks about hiring two workers to work in a warehouse, and they just have to plug numbers into a computer at two separate computers. And I think Keller always likes to say, there's no windows in the warehouse, too, by the way. And there's these two guys, and they, they have a, just a very tedious job plugging in numbers into a computer every minute or whatever it is. And they have to do it for a year. And he says, there's one worker who they say, hey, we're just going to pay you minimum wage, okay? And, and, and then there's the other worker, they say, hey, uh, we're not going to pay you now, but at the end of the year, we're going to give you like $5 million, okay? At the end of this year, you get $5 million. And Keller loves to ask the question then to help illustrate uh, the gospel a lot of times. He goes, which one of those two do you think worked more joyfully? And, you know, the obvious answer is the one that knew millions of dollars was on the way. Like, that person worked joyfully. And I think what's true for us is that's true. Like, however you work now, however you, like, even if it's not, like, it feels like not a lot of money, it feels not prestigious, it feels tedious, Jesus is going to pay you himself one day for your hard work because of how it images him. All work is good and serves God and images God. Our work really matters. I think we could pull that from this passage. I think the third thing that this text can teach us is that the common table was a radical mark of early Christianity and a radical display of the power of the gospel. I'm going to say that again. The common table was a radical mark of early Christianity and a radical display of the power of the gospel. So do you know why Paul was writing to slaves? Because slaves were becoming Christians. And when slaves were becoming Christians in Paul's day, that meant they began to share the dinner table with other Christians. They began to share the communion table with other Christians. They began to share the fellowship table with other Christians. And what was, who was at that table? Free and slave, Jew and Greek, clean and unclean, women and men. 
That was not common in the Roman world. The average Roman dinner table was divided up or the average Roman citizen that was all sorts of ethnicities with all sorts of religions, they divided up their tables by all sorts of categories, clean, unclean, rich, poor, free, enslaved. And yet, for the Christians, the dinner table became common to everybody. Everybody was welcome, free, and slave, rich and poor, male and female, they shared the same dinner table. And this was a radical mark of the early church and a powerful display of the gospel. King Jesus came into a world very divided by all sorts of stupid things that we shouldn't be divided by. And the gospel was the power that united humanity, realizing that the image of God is on each and every one of us. This is what led the Christian revolution. I really think the dinner table, the common table, the table they ate at, this led the Christian revolution. And the Christian revolution led Western society, which we are part of, to believe that women, children, and the vulnerable or the enslaved all have dignity, all have worth in God's eyes. All are equal in God's eyes. And how that was displayed... How, that, how people became convinced of that was they ate dinner together. The common table was a radical mark of early Christianity, a powerful display of the gospel. And I think the common table still has power to be radical today. I'll, I'll ask you this question. Who's at your dinner table? Who do you eat with? Most of you are going, oh, my family. And, and I actually don't want to blast that because that's really good. <laughs> And that this is kind of our society. We don't share tables as much as other societies in history have. So I'll say this. When you don't eat with your family or your roommates or whomever it might be, who do you eat with? Who's at your table? Who's there as an equal? Who's someone you want to get dinner with? Who's someone you do get dinner with? Because I think who we eat with actually has the power to display the power of the gospel has the ability to display the power of the gospel. Uh, Something I hear in churches a lot, you know, we do roots class, we bring everybody in, we kind of talk about, hey, what are things you want to do at different points in the roots class? And uh, inevitably, people always want to say, we want to serve the homeless in some way. I think every Christian in America wants to serve the homeless. And I love that. And that's great. And that's amazing. How many of us have the homeless over for dinner? I can't do that. My kids, something. Okay, how many of you go out to eat for dinner with the homeless? What if we did? What if that was more common among us? Wouldn't that be a little bit radical? Wouldn't that display God's redeeming, gracious hand? The dinner table, the common table has the power it has the ability to display the power of the gospel. We all, wanna, uh, we all love to say we want relationships that are diverse, whether it's like just socioeconomic status, whether it's age-wise, whether it's ethnicity. We all say, hey, I want to have diverse relationships. I want to be part of the whole family of God. At your dinner table, are the relationships diverse? The people you eat with, are, are those relationships diverse? And, and I think it's worth asking why or why not. It's, it's surprising how easy it is to have dinner with someone that's pretty different than you. 
and to build a relationship that way. I'm saying this not to puff myself up. Sometimes we have people in here that come to church and they visit our church and they clearly have special needs of some sort. They might be schizophrenic. My step one always with those people in our midst is trying to figure out if there's a way we could have lunch together and going from there. And you'd be amazed how powerful that can be. Just grabbing lunch with someone very different than you. It has the power. I really actually think the Holy Spirit works in that and does something in that. In the early church, Paul and Timothy had to speak to the whole table. And the whole table for the Christians included lots of people. And to challenge us a little bit more, if Paul and Timothy were to write our church a letter that spoke to everyone that was at our dinner tables, who all would it encompass? How much of the vulnerable? How much of the hurting? How much of the people, if you go to Matthew 25 and look at all these people that God says, when you serve them, you serve me, how many of those types would be at our dinner tables? I don't want us to feel the burden and the weight of this. I want us to realize the gospel is powerful enough for us to just, even by simply having dinner with someone, it can radically display the power of God. Do our tables in this church have the power to revolutionize the world? I think they could because I think Jesus and the gospel has the power to do that. So church, my prayer is I hope we could take this hard text and we could listen to it today. I hope that we could see our heart's desire to dehumanize at times, and I hope we will repent from that. I hope that we'll know that our work matters, and I hope that we have a radical gospel-displaying common table. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, help those of us that are still wrestling. I imagine there's a lot of people still wrestling with this passage, God, because it's just, it can be a tough passage to read. And God, thank, thank you for your work in this world that that has become a tough passage to read. I think it would be far more sad, God, if we lived in a time and place where that passage was not tough to read. God, you know all that you want to do with us with that passage. You know all you want us to repent from. God, help us to see you and the gospel so powerfully, God. I don't want us to just work out of guilt or obligation or anything because me, Anthony, made some good points, God. I, I want us to be changed by you. And that's why we uh, enact a more common dinner table or choose to not be the sinful pharaohs that many of us are. And God, may we see that our work matters. And so God, we love you and we need you. Amen.